All right, Fate and Chance, Part 7. Over the last three sermons in our series on Paul's letter to the Romans, we saw that Paul's kinsmen were rejecting the Messiah. They were rejecting the gospel message. Remember, they had pursued a righteousness that was not by faith, but instead by works. In so doing, they stumbled over what? The stumbling stone over the cornerstone, who obviously was and is Christ. And we saw that this was sovereignly so, uh, for it was such so that the Gentiles could be included in God's salvific plan, right? Remember what Paul said in chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. He quotes there parts of Deuteronomy chapter 30, and he says, The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Then he says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I told you last week at the very end of the sermon that I wanted to tidy up the meaning of verse 10 by taking a closer look at the word justified as its its meaning here before we move on. In that vein the well-respected author and navigator Jerry Bridges said this about justification. He said, to be justified means more than to be declared not guilty. It actually means to be declared righteous before God. It means that God has imputed or charged the guilt of our sin to his son, Jesus Christ, and has imputed or credited Christ's righteousness to us. I think that's a very good explanation of justification. I could have elaborated on the doctrine of justification back in chapter 8, Romans 8, verse 30, but the context was different in chapter 8 as opposed to here in chapter 10. The context here in chapter 10 shows our role in justification, so to speak. Of course, God is the author of regeneration and justification in our lives alike, right? He and only he regenerates the heart, and the result of the regenerated heart is our justification, However, as I just said, we have a role to play in justification also. And our role is in, if you look, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 10. Our role is to exercise that regenerated heart and in so doing, believe with it that God raised Christ from the dead. And as such, Paul says we are saved. That's verse 9. 
Then Paul inserts a term of conclusion in verse 10, and he says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So that's the result of a regenerated heart. It's the outcome or conclusion, if you will. The regenerated heart will always, without fail, believe, and it will always, without fail, confess Christ as the only begotten Son of the Father and Savior of all men, Jew and Gentile. Remember the context here. Since the beginning of chapter 9, we're looking at chapters 9 through 11, the context since the beginning of chapter 9 has been the Jews' attempt to be justified by the deeds of the law. The Apostle Paul said a big fat no to that notion all the way back in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Remember that? Paul said, therefore we conclude that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Then just two chapters later, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul said, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here in Romans 10, Paul says again that we are not only justified by faith, but he says in the very next verse, verse 11, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, Jew and Gentile, bestowing riches on all, Jew and Gentile, who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul said the same thing over in Romans 5.18. He said, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Jew and Gentile, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that would be Adam, and so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That would be Christ. I hope and pray that you're seeing the consistency of Paul's thought here from one chapter to the next. He's been preaching justification by faith alone since chapter 3. He has been contrasting it with salvation by works the entire time. And he's also been beating the drum of the Gentiles being included in God's salvific plan the entire time. So what shall we say then, Paul says, in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness that is by faith? And the answer is, Absolutely, absolutely yes. And Paul continues telling, or I should say continues by telling us, it's a free gift from God through Jesus Christ by way of the Holy Spirit for Jews and Greeks. Paul makes it very clear that the Trinity, the entire Trinity, is at work here. 
And it's also worth mentioning that the doctrine of justification by faith alone should not be anything new to the Jewish leader, Jewish leaders of Paul's day. They knew Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, by heart, okay? From what says the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. They knew Abraham was justified by faith. And when Paul quoted Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, he was appealing to that knowledge that he knew they had. Namely, that Abraham was justified by faith before God and not by works. And of course, Paul said the same thing in Galatians 3.6. So what's my point there? God's initiation through regeneration of our heart leads to justifying faith, which leads to imputed righteousness. And it does it every time without fail. That's the point that Paul's trying to make here. Regeneration, justification, imputed righteousness happen every time that the Lord initiates his salvific plan because the scriptures teach that God's grace shown in our hearts is an irresistible grace. You cannot resist it. If God wants to save you, you will get saved. And Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And Jesus also said, uh, the author of John, I should say, said, in John 1.13, we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but the will of God. Any of you listening here today who has done any kind of authentic evangelistic work knows full well that the Holy Spirit must accompany the gospel, the gospel proclamation with a demonstration of God's sovereign power in the miraculous move of Almighty God on the souls of those listening. That must take place or there will be no conversions. No matter how clever your words are, or how fancy your argument is, if the Holy Spirit is not moving in that conversation, those people are not going to be saved. And I think that Paul demonstrates that pretty clearly. It is a constant theme woven on throughout the scriptures from beginning to end, especially here in Romans, that salvation is 100% of God. Now, some of you may be thinking... Well, how can the Jews be held responsible when the scriptures say that God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day? As a matter of fact, Paul says this right here in our text in Romans chapter 11, verse 8. He quotes bits of... Um, the Old Testament here, then in verses 9 and 10, 
of Romans 11, he quotes Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23, where David said, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. How in the world can God hold them responsible? He stopped their ears. He blinded their eyes. Well, first you have to keep in mind that the Lord stopped their ears and blinded their eyes because of their incessant obstinance and their willful disobedience. God didn't allow this just for kicks and giggles. He did it because of their failure to be obedient in just about everything he asked them to do. They were very, very far from being innocent. And these Jewish leaders of Paul's day had that in common with their kinsmen in the writings of the Old Testament. You know, the ones that stoned and killed the prophets, those kinsmen, they were very similar, folks, to many of the politicians of our day. How so? They knew that what they were doing was wrong. They knew that God knew that they were doing it. Yet, when God called them out on it, they lied through their teeth right to his face. And in so doing, they tried to turn the tables and blame others as if they had done absolutely nothing wrong. They grumbled right after their exodus out of Egypt. I mean, you see all these miracles that God performed in Egypt? As soon as they come out, Exodus 15, they're complaining. And Sinai, they made and worshipped the golden calf. Exodus 32, Nadab and Abihu did not abide by God's commandments for worship, but did as they saw fit. Leviticus 10, they, they screwed up the spying out of Canaan with their rebellion regarding the report of the spies, Numbers 13. You get the picture. And despite all these things, and many, many others, over a period of hundreds of years, God still showered them with his grace time and time again, just like he does with you and I, when we're obstinate and disobedient and, and stupid. I'll speak for myself. So let's not be surprised right here in our text when we see Paul quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 65, verse 2, in verse 21 of Romans 10, which says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. I just wanted to handle that objection up front. You know, the Jews didn't have a chance. Objection. They, they did have a chance. They had many chances. Okay? Now let's get back to justification and God being the initiator of salvation for each individual that is saved. People always say to me in this re regard, 
of God initiating salvation and salvation being entirely up to God from beginning to end. They say, well, what about free will? If God initiates our salvation and he is even solely responsible for whether or not we respond to the call, as I said, his grace is irresistible. If he calls you, you will respond. You can't say no. That's what the Bible teaches. People will say to me then, aren't we all just a bunch of puppets? Just let me touch on this very briefly here. We are going to get into this much more deeply and comprehensively when we begin tying all of this together under the heading of fate or chance in the next three or four weeks. But just to wet your whistle this morning and to get you thinking about this, we need to keep in mind when we speak of this subject of free agency, free will, that the same God who has ordained human liberty in the midst of these events and this liberty we need to understand is surely fixed as is anything else in Scripture. Let me say that again. The same God who has ordained all events has ordained human liberty, human will, free agency, free will, whatever you want to call it. The same God who has ordained all events has ordained human liberty in the midst of those events. And this liberty is as surely fixed as anything else. So we exercise free will, but our free will is caught up in the sovereign ordination of God's pre-existing and predetermined plan. Is everybody with me on that? Lorraine Bittner, who was a guy, theologian, in his classic book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, which I highly recommend, says this about free will. In the divine plan, which is infinite in a variety and, and I'm sorry, which is infinite in variety and complexity, which reaches from everlasting to everlasting, and which includes millions of free agents who act and interact upon each other, God has ordained that human beings shall keep their liberty under his sovereignty. God has ordained that human beings shall keep their liberty under his sovereignty. Bittner goes on to say, he, God, has made no attempt to give us a moral explanation of these things, and our limited human knowledge is not able to fully solve this mysterious problem. He continues, since the scripture, since the scripture writers did not hesitate to affirm the absolute sway of God over the thoughts and intents of the heart, they felt no embarrassment in including the acts of free agents within his all-embracing plan. In other words, they didn't say, hey, you know, uh, let me explain this to you guys because, you know, it might be bugging you. No, they just laid it out there. 
So we see that free agency or the free agency of man is wrapped up in God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign execution of that plan. And this is the mystery that we accept by faith. There are many, many, many examples of this in Scripture, which we will look at in weeks to come. My favorite is the life of Joseph. I mean, think about it, okay? When we study the life of Joseph, we're met with thousands of decisions made by men of their own liberty throughout Joseph's entire life. From that dream that he had as a boy, where his brothers bowed down to him, to him being sold into slavery by those brothers, um, to his time in Potiphar's house, to the accusations made against him, to the people that he interacted with in prison, to the drought, and finally to his brothers indeed bowing down before him physically. All of those free will decisions, think about this, all of those free will decisions were wrapped up in God's sovereign plan from beginning to end. How could all or even any of those things that happened to Joseph be the result of time and chance? The answer is they can't. Just take the dream alone. Just take the dream. How could the construction of that dream have been vis-a-vis time and chance? Coincidence. And then... What about its outcome many, many years later? How could that possibly be a product of chance? It can't, at least not by any mathematical odds that we have at our disposal today. When we dig deeper into this, we will examine some of the philosophical and metaphysical aspects of how something like this can be possible. We will entertain some theories, like like perhaps um, theories that might explain these types of things, like off the top of my head, um, God and celestial beings that do God's bidding for him, um, moving in and out of time because time has ceased to exist for them. Perhaps that's how They're operating in eternity. When you're operating in a place where there is no time, there's a good argument that could be made for it to be eternal. I promise you, though, that the things we go over in this regard will not be hard to understand. Some of them will require faith. Some of them will be a mystery, but they won't be hard to understand. Okay? I will make them easily understood. Trust me. Okay, back to God being the author of our salvation. Before we move on from this subject this morning, I would like to leave you with something to think about in this regard, okay? Please ponder this question in your heart this week, okay? Why is man just peachy keen with the mystery of things like the Trinity, the Incarnation, God manifesting himself in human flesh. Why is man okay with God opening and closing the wombs of women in Scripture at his will? Why is man okay 
with God causing droughts and allowing thousands of people to be wiped off the face of the earth? Why are some Christian men and women okay with all of those things, but they absolutely hate and they utterly detest and fight back against? I've even seen friendships destroyed over the mystery of free will and God's sovereignty. All these other things they're okay with. But they're not okay with thinking that they had nothing to do with their own salvation. Drives them batty. Think about that. What I want you to see this morning in regard to what I just went over is that our text is plain regarding the Jews in these verses in the Apostle Paul's day. More specifically, I want you to understand that even though there is no distinction between Jew and Greek when it comes to the Lord bestowing the riches of salvation upon man, there is a season spoken of here in our text where, and I'm quoting now, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. That's Romans 11, 7 and 8. Right now, okay, let's review or $20 word, recapitulate, as they say. We've talked about salvation for both the Jew and the Gentile. We've talked about the fact that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? We've learned that those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. For with what? The heart, Paul says, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And we just saw this morning that those who fall into this category, are justified before God. Their sins have been washed away by the atoning blood of the perfect, once and for all, without blemish, sacrificed Lamb of God, shed on Calvary's cross, and Christ's righteousness that has been imputed to them. And as such, they are in right standing before God and ready to inherit that which Christ secured for them in heaven as adopted sons and daughters of God whose eternal life has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. This is what we've learned thus far in Romans. Chapters 1 through 10. We've looked at how that all comes about theologically, right? Now let's look with Paul at the protocol. Let's look at the manner, if you will, by which salvation comes to fruition. In verse 14 of our text, Romans 10, Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful 
are the feet of those who preach the good news. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7 in these verses. Okay, 14 and 15 of Romans 10. He's quoting Isaiah 52, 7. Men and women take the gospel out to the world. Now, if God knows and has ordained the end from the beginning, then why should we pray? And why should we pray about salvation? Why should we pray about the success of those people who have gone out to take the gospel abroad? The answer is simple. We pray because prayer is the avenue by which God has chosen to bring about that which he has ordained from the beginning. The same logic follows in our text. Why should we preach the gospel when God has already decided who will be saved and who won't be saved? The answer is because God has chosen the proclamation and preaching of the gospel to create believing faith by that method, by that avenue. That's the avenue he's chosen to bring it about. If you are working on a TV assembly line, I know somebody that does that, and you're told by your employer to place that peg in that hole, then that's what you do. You place the peg in the hole. At no time is the engineer who who designed the entire TV assembly required to explain to you how your peg in that hole will enable the consumer to see that television picture. But regardless, you do know that without your peg in that hole, no one will see the TV picture. So you do it. The peg in the hole is the means by which the picture comes about for people to see. It's no different with the gospel. At no time is God required to explain to us why he chose us to proclaim the gospel as the solitary means by which he will save people from their sins and restore them to right standing with him through his only begotten son. But you know that without you sharing the gospel message, people will not get saved because the proclamation of that gospel is the means It's the avenue by which God has chosen to save them. It doesn't matter why. We don't question him as to why. That's his business. Our business is to be obedient to what he's told us to do and be heralds of the gospel. Proclaim it. After demonstrating this to his readers, after demonstrating the beauty of the gospel message and why it needs to be proclaimed, Paul goes right back into Israel's obstinance in verse 16. Look at verse 16, chapter 10. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul quotes Isaiah 52.7 where people rejoiced at the heralds who brought good news to release them from the Babylonian captivity saying, your God reigns. 
But then he quotes Isaiah 53.1 to tell of how quickly Israel rejected the good news and to indicate that Israel's rejection of God's suffering servant was not unexpected. God knew they would reject it. The spoken word of the gospel with Christ as its center is the means by which he creates faith in someone's heart. It's part of the plan. The gospel preached, first and foremost, makes a person see their need for repentance, for true contrition, for a turning away from their sins. I am so sorry for my sins, Lord. I now see through the proclamation of your gospel how real my sin is and how guilty I truly am before you. I must turn from my wicked ways and serve you, Lord. Now in verse 18, Paul asks a rhetorical question. Paul replies to an implied objection. He says, have they not heard? Who's they? The Israelites, right? Have they not heard? Paul is rhetorically implying, in essence, that the Israelites rejected the gospel because not all had heard the gospel. In other words, it's not their fault that they haven't responded to the gospel message. They haven't all heard the gospel. And so how do you expect them to respond? <laughs> but Paul dismisses this implied excuse for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He basically says that they are without excuse by quoting, he quotes Psalm 19.4, they're without excuse, okay? And Psalm 19.4 basically says what Paul said over in Romans 1, that all men are without excuse because the heavens declare God's glory. Then in verse 19, verses 19 through 21 of our text, Paul raises another objection. Israel doesn't understand the word concerning Christ. That's another objection. Then Paul dismantles this excuse for Israel, his kinsmen, by saying that the Israelites can't plead ignorance here because they have the law and the prophets who not only reveal Christ, but also convey the fact that if the Gentiles can understand the gospel, then Israel surely can't plead ignorance, right? No, they can't. And we need to understand here, church, that God didn't harden Israel in order to damn them. That's not what's going on here. He allowed the Jews to stumble so as to allow the Gentiles to receive salvation. Acts 18.6. And that Gentile salvation will in turn make unbelieving Israel envious and in so doing will incite Israel to salvation. In God's inscrutable sovereignty here, the animosity between Jews and Gentiles will ultimately mutually benefit one another in this regard. Okay, so we'll stop here for now. Next week we will delve further into this metaphor that tells us of the Jews and Gentiles as olive tree branches grafted in, broken off, 
and all that jazz. We'll look at God's infinite mercy and riches and knowledge and wisdom and glory in all this. Okay. Then we will delve into chapter 11. And after that, we will take two or three weeks to answer those tough questions as they are referred to by some. And we will especially look at God's sovereignty and what, if anything, in God's sovereign plan is left to time and chance. Let's pray.